We first meet Joe 27 minutes into the 1970 film that bears his name. And this is our introduction to the character and his worldview. The niggas. The niggas are getting all the money. Why work? You tell me, why the fuck work when you can screw, have babies, and get paid for it? Welfare. They get all that welfare money. They even get free rubbers. You think they use them? Hell no, the only way they make money is making babies. They sell the rubbers. And then they use the money to, to buy booze. When we first see Joe Curran, played by Peter Boyle, he's sitting on a stool at the bar of the conspicuously named American Bar and Grill, holding court with a comfort that gives us the impression he does this a lot, sitting on his bar stool, espousing his views. Yeah, the social workers, the ones in welfare, how come they're all nigger lovers? You ever notice that? All those social workers are nigger lovers. You find me a social worker who ain't a nigger lover and I'll massage your ass. I ain't queer. Before the title character's attention-grabbing entrance, Joe has told a very different story about an upper-class businessman and his runaway hippie daughter. And indeed, when director John G. Avildsen and screenwriter Norman Wexler devised and shot this film, it bore a different title, The Gap, emphasizing its focus on the generation gap, a hot topic of the late 1960s. But by the time they were editing the film, something happened in downtown New York City that made them shift their focus and capture a moment in America that was far from fleeting. Today, we'll look back at Joe and the seismic shift in politics and in protest that warranted its reconfiguration. And we'll also look at another film released a year later that told a similar story, but from a strikingly different point of view. To help us do this, we have author and historian Jefferson Cowie. All right, say something. We have filmmaker Larry Karaszewski. I was waiting for that. Hey, welcome to blah, 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 that kind of crap. We have film historian Derek Nystrom. I'm always delighted someone other than my mom has read it, so. We have film critic Christy Puchko. You don't really need to promote my Instagram because it is mostly just outfits and cocktails, as you know. And we have film writer Zach Vasquez. Joe really feels like the beginning of the 70s. I'm Jason Bailey, and this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. Jeannie and Karina were supposed to go into the city today. They've given us the names of some places where the kids hang out in town. We're going to go look at them. Yeah, there's a parking lot at Bowery and East Fifth Street. How does it feel to be back in the war zone? In New York City. New York. New York. Right. I bet you can't even find the subway. Up yours, you son of a bitch! You don't talk me that way! Get out of here! Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. Hey, you guys, train's right over there. It's on uh, First Avenue, right between 6th and 7th. Fun City, my ass. I don't know how you find anyone in this city. I know. I'm at the intersection of Wall Street and Broad Street in downtown Manhattan. This is the location of the New York Stock Exchange, the heart of New York City's financial district. And this was where one of the worst outbreaks of civilian violence in the city's history began. A full afternoon of brutal assaults in the streets and on the sidewalks of Manhattan that came to be known as the Hard Hat Riot. The date was Friday, May 8, 1970. 
Major cities and campuses across the country were in a perpetual state of protest over the United States' involvement in the war in Vietnam. Those protests had escalated in recent days over President Nixon's expansion of the war into Cambodia. And in one of those protests, at Ohio's Kent State University, National Guardsmen opened fire on a crowd of nonviolent demonstrators, wounding nine and killing four. One of them was Jeffrey Miller, who hailed from Plainview, Long Island. He's the young man face down on the ground in the famous photo from Kent State, with a young woman kneeled over him, arms spread, anguished. Two days after his murder, thousands of anti-war protesters gathered at his funeral on the Upper West Side. Mayor John Lindsay pronounced that May 8th would be a citywide day of reflection, with schools closed and flags at half-mast. In the meantime, protesters had begun to meet on Wall Street for daily anti-war demonstrations. They chanted, spoke into bullhorns, and occasionally hurled slogans and profanities at passing businessmen. On May 7th, a group of 20 to 40 American flag-waving construction workers, many of them on the job at the nearby World Trade Center site, clashed with student demonstrators. That night and into the morning of the 8th, the NYPD received several anonymous tips that workmen were planning to disrupt that day's lunchtime demonstration, intending to, quote, knock heads with and, quote, take care of the protesters outside the stock exchange. By the time speakers were at the lectern of the demonstration that day, the rumors had made their way to the protesters. One speaker advised the crowd not to fight hard hats that might attack them. The police are here to protect us, the speaker insisted. Instead, when the hard hats began working their way into the crowd, a patrolman was heard shouting, Give them hell, boys! Give them one for me! The construction workers came up Broad Street, marching in their steel-toed boots and colored hard hats, several men wide, shouldering American flags and chanting, USA all the way! And, hey, hey, what do you say? We support the USA! And, love it or leave it! Police estimated that a total of 400 hard hats came to the scene. The shouting and the tensions escalated. At first, police on the scene attempted to keep the group separate, forming a human chain across Broad Street and then another behind it. But the hard hats broke through both lines of cops and descended on the crowd with a furious roar. Fists flew. Protesters were thrown to the ground, punched, kicked. Pipes, wrenches, and other construction equipment were wielded as weapons. ABC News reported that, quote, police did little to stop the workers once the melee began. Witnesses would say they saw NYPD officers passively watching the violence or even shouting words of encouragement. In the surrounding buildings, office workers crowded around windows to watch the ruckus. Some came down to the ground for a closer look or to cheer on the hard hats or more. Eventually, 800 office workers, more than twice the number of hard hats counted, would join in the violence. After 15 minutes, NYPD reinforcements arrived, but all that did was scatter the beatings from their epicenter. Student demonstrators fled down side streets, only to be followed, attacked, and left on the sidewalks. Several ran to the nearby campus of Pace University, only to be followed on that building's grounds and beaten with fists, feet, pipes, and wire cutters. But the bulk of the attackers were now marching up Broadway, the Canyon of Heroes, home of celebratory parades for visiting luminaries and victorious sports teams. The office dwellers on Broadway treated them accordingly, showering them with cheers and ticker tape. And a large group landed at City Hall, 
where the flags were at half-staff for the Kent State Day of Reflection. Put the flag at full mast, one yelled. Raise our flag! The crowd got larger and angrier. They pushed against the police officers stationed at the front of the building, and then passed them, hopping fences, knocking over iron barricades, attempting to breach the doors of City Hall. City officials inside, terrified of what would happen if they got inside, raised the flags. The men outside cheered, raised the flags they were carrying, and sang the national anthem. Anti-war protesters who were watching all of this began shouting peace slogans in response. They were quickly attacked. Finally, by mid-afternoon, the mob began to disperse. Many returned to their construction jobs at World Trade. Few had their pay docked for the time they were gone, and some even received bonuses. The NYPD, which had clubbed anti-war protesters the day before for blocking traffic, did not raise a hand to the hard hats and businessmen. Most chatted amiably with the attackers, laughed with them, slapped their backs. More than 100 people were injured in the hard hat riot, and normally we would play archival audio for you from that day. But there isn't much of that, because the attackers quickly targeted members of the media and destroyed their equipment or exposed their film. And at the end of the day, the New York Police Department had arrested only one, one, of the more than 1,200 hard hats and businessmen who perpetrated the attacks. On June 28, 1970, less than two months after the hard hat riot, the New York Times Magazine ran a lengthy, sympathetic profile of Joe Kelly, one of its participants. He recalled, When we first went up on the steps and the flags went up there, the whole group started singing God Bless America and it damn near put a lump in your throat. It was really something. I can never say I was sorry I was there. You just had a very proud feeling. If I live to be 100, I don't think I'll ever see anything quite like that again. And he summed up the response, positive and negative, to the event as well. I think that the large majority of people going as high as 85 or 90 percent are more than happy. Not so much for the violence, but for the stand that we took. And now they're standing up. The construction worker is only an image that's being used. The hard hat is being used to represent all the silent majority. And he was right. And one of the first examples of that representation in popular culture was Joe. Remember, the film came out just two months after the Hard Hat Riots. Its release date was July 15th. This is Derek Nystrom. He's a university professor, a film historian, and author of the book Hard Hats, Rednecks, and Macho Men, Class in 1970s American Cinema. So we're talking about a film that was clearly trying to sort of use that as uh, unpaid promotion uh, for its film. And in doing so, so by changing the title from The Gap to Joe, it centers the, the hard hat character. The story goes that in addition to retitling the film and centering Joe in its ad campaign, the filmmakers recut the movie to make him a more important character. But Larry Karaszewski, the screenwriter, filmmaker, and film historian, isn't sure it was quite that elaborate. Sometimes I think that just happens when you're making a movie where like, you know, any good editor is going to look at that footage and say, where's the, where's the screen want to be? And the screen wants to be on friggin' Peter Boyle, but it still takes a long time to get to Peter Boyle. We spend the opening scenes getting to know Melissa Compton, played by Susan Sarandon in her film debut. Melissa is a free-spirited young hippie chick shacked up with a loathsome low-level drug dealer in Greenwich Village. Early in the film, while browsing at a discount store, she has an overdose. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, hey take it easy. Oh, let me. You'll be 
Her well-to-do parents come to visit her in the hospital and make vague promises towards ending their estrangement. We'll try again. You know what I mean. Talk it over. Maybe we haven't been as open as we could. We'll work it out, honey. It'll be okay. While she recovers, her father, Bill, goes to her apartment and runs into her boyfriend there. Who are you? Melissa's in the hospital. I'm picking up her clothes. Oh, your daddy. I should have recognized the nose. She's got a real thing about you. When I met her, she was bawling her way up the aisle at the film. And every now and then, she used to like to try an old con. In a blind rage, Bill Compton beats his daughter's boyfriend to death, then ransacks the apartment to make it look like a burglary. Still in a daze, he goes to the American Bar and Grill, and that's where he and we first meet Joe. Not like those kids in Chicago. Chicago. They got no respect for the President of the United States. A few heads get bashed and they act like they got any ass. They're liberals. 42% of all liberals are queer. That's a fact. When Joe appears, it is almost appears as the eruption of Bill's id, right? That, that Bill has just killed, accidentally, but still in a fit of rage, his daughter's boyfriend. And as he flees the scene, the, the next shot we get is a shot of Peter Boyle playing Joe, starting to sort of go on a kind of racist rant. And the kids, the white kids. They're worse than the niggas. I think Joe figures almost as a certain kind of metaphorical expression of Bill's rage, which then weirdly sets the stage for a kind of cross-class bonding between the two men as the narrative develops. I like to kill one of them. I just did. Where do you hear it? He is the id for the modern man. That's film writer Zach Vasquez. He's the id for, you know, the, the upper class, middle class, upper class uh, white guy. And so this is just like a, a figure that appears throughout these kind of like white, angry loner or white Avenger stories, just constantly. And so an unlikely bond forms between these two men, especially after Joe sees a news report about the death of Melissa's boyfriend and connects the dots. Each of these men revels in the opportunity to see how the other half lives, while bonding over their shared concern, okay, hatred, over what's become of this country. Here's film critic Christy Puchko. So much of this movie is ultimately about a man who refuses to deal with his own emotions. You know, like I was watching, I was like, oh my God, toxic masculinity, like on, on Maine right here. And to watch Joe fantasize about being Bill, not just because he murdered, you know, a drug dealer, but also because Bill has money and Bill has power and Bill whatever, like it becomes this very unnerving blue collar fantasy that I think lets people who wouldn't agree with Joe into like why that would be seductive. Though Melissa eventually recovers from her overdose, she discovers what her father did and runs away from home again. Bill tries to find her, but this time with some help. I've been down in the village every night trying to find her. Look, I'll go with you. 
falling off my feet. I was thinking about getting to bed early tonight. No, no, no. You can't stop looking. You gotta keep looking. Okay, I'll meet you down in the village around 8. In the course of their makeshift investigation, Joe and Bill end up partying with a bunch of village hippies. All my life, I ain't never been to an orgy. This is an orgy, isn't it? Ah, yes. It it seems to fit the definition. Fucking hell. But while they're getting lucky, some of the other participants steal their wallets and flee. Joe brutalizes the women left behind to find out where they went. Where did it go? You're going to tell me or you're going to beat the shit out of you? Come on! Come on! And the men drive out to an isolated farmhouse, a tranquil setting that turns into a bloodbath. What the hell are you doing, Compton? What are you going to do? You're going to shoot me? Well, where's that going to get you? You want to shoot somebody, shoot them. Look, Tom, there's only one way out now. Clean. That means everybody. At this point, it can get to be fun. No. War. I don't get you, Compton. You hate those kids. And as the shooting continues, with Joe's voice echoing in his head, Bill starts shooting too. Kids, they shit on you. They shit on your life. They shit on everything you believe in. They shit on everything. Including shooting a young woman as she runs out the front door. his own daughter, whom he had, ostensibly, gone out that night to save. Joe was released on July 15, 1970, and its poster featured the title character front and center, with a shotgun in one hand and an American flag in the other. The tagline above him read, in big capital letters, Keep America Beautiful. The retitling and the ad campaign worked. Joe cost just north of $100,000 to make, in its original release, it grossed over $19 million, making it the 12th highest-grossing movie of 1970, ahead of films like Five Easy Pieces and Kelly's Heroes. And critics praised it. Gene Siskel called it a landmark film because of the issues and social norms it justifies. It is a dramatic, if not always sophisticated, documentary of a growing portion of the national mentality. End quote. But something interesting happened as the film entered the national conversation. Even though the storyline is very much about how Joe and Bill are aligned in their anger against the counterculture, ultimately they are joined in their violence against uh, members of the counterculture, the film is uh, frequently sort of talked about as, oh, this is a a story about a working class guy who's had enough and lashes out against the counterculture. And ironically, a reception that was reinforced by even sort of young people aligned with the counterculture watching the film. Because there are all these stories about how, you know, young people in the audience were standing up and yelling, we'll get you, Joe, at the end of the film. And one of the things that's fascinating is that none of them say, we'll get you, Bill. (laughs) We'll get you, because he's the guy who actually kills his own daughter, right? Something very similar was happening in the conversations about the hard hat riot that had prompted the changes that arguably made Joe such a success. 
You had this event in which hard hat wearing construction workers end up physically assaulting a bunch of anti-war protesters. And yet, as the uh, journalistic accounts at the time emphasized, they weren't the only ones doing this, that there were a lot of people working on Wall Street because, of course, this this fight happened in Wall on Wall Street. A lot of these Wall Street workers ended up joining in on beating up the protesters. And yet when the event gets told, both then and now, it gets told as this kind of unalloyed expression of working class resentment against middle class protesters. And the identity of all of the sort of guys from Wall Street who joined in on beating up the hippies sort of disappears. There is a uh, political cartoon at the time that showed like a Wall Street fat cat and a blue collar worker you know, together beating a hippie with a with the, with the American flag. And I think what it's saying and what Joe was saying is that beyond all the differences of class and culture, uh, and for as much as the upper class likes to think of themselves as, you know, like modernized and even to an extent liberal and tolerant, like when it comes to facing actual so societal change, they, they have the same resentments and are filled with the same sort of reactionary, violent fantasies. But what's striking again about the the end of Joe is that, again, it's not the it's Susan Sarandon's daughter character is not killed by Joe. It's killed by her own father, right? So this film begins with this generational conflict, uh, generational antagonism within the middle class. And then it ends with a literal uh, uh, sort of killing of the younger generation. And, and and so you would imagine that this would be a story about like, oh, this 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 film will be understood as the battle within the middle class for, for the, what the next generation will be doing. But instead it gets retold as, oh, this is a story of white working class violence against uh, hippies. Joe was one of those weird movies that divided the country a bit. That ending is supposed to be, oh my God, what have we done? But instead, to at least a portion of the audience, the character struck a chord that was not villainous. The idea of, of, of an aggrieved white man unleashing his fury because he feels like he is chosen, he feels like he has a message, he feels like he has a purpose. We're seeing that so often anymore that I think we're just numb to it. Joe was uh, considered a, you know, uh, a hero enough to some people that they, you know, I actually have it. There's actually, you know, a regular soundtrack album for Joe. And then there's an album of just, I think it's called Joe Speaks or Joe Talks. And it's simply this, I mean, just Google it. It's really hysterical. It's, ju it's, just, it's just Joe's monologues. And so, you know, you, you could relive Joe's monologues. There was a newspaper article at the time that followed around Peter Boyle in his neighborhood. And at one point, like a, li a nice little old lady came up to him at his deli and said, like, I just want to tell you, young man, I agreed with everything you said. And I wish someone had said it sooner. And he was so horrified by that. And he was also horrified by like all the like kids on the street that would be like, hey, we're going to shoot back next time, Joe. And he was so horrified by both of those ideas. Adding to that horror and to the sense that Joe had captured something very present and scary in the culture was its disturbing real life analog. Oh, God. So like 10 days before this movie came out, someone did what Bill Compton did, basically. His name was Arville Douglas Garnold. He was a blue collar railroad worker. And he broke into where his college daughter was staying. She was 17. And he went to like the place that she was living with her boyfriend and some other hippies. And he ended up killing them, including her. Arville Garland shot and killed his daughter, Sandra, as well as teenagers Scott Cabron, Gregory Walls, and Anthony Brown in a residence near Wayne State University in Detroit early in the morning of May 8th, 1970. The same day as the Hard Hat Riot. 
And the judge at the time instructed the defense and the prosecution to watch Joe because by the time they went to trial, it had come out. But he forbade, he forbade the jury to watch it. In spite of the brutality of the crimes and the fact that he had brought extra ammunition, indicating premeditation, Garland was only convicted of manslaughter in the death of his daughter and second degree murder for each of the three teens in her home. Here's the most screwed up part. People wrote to Sandy Garland, the murderer, the convicted murderer, and said that they understood, said that they sympathized. Someone wrote to him and said, there must surely be many among us who have done in our hearts what you have done with your hands. To have those to whom we have opened our hearts and treasures say, your truth is not truth, your values are without value, can be beyond bearing. Like, not just a generational shift, but literally parents fantasizing about murdering their children for rejecting their values. It made the conclusion of Joe, which was presumably intended to play like Greek tragedy, into something closer to social realism. I think they're sending the, the right message for that time, which is, uh, in, the, in the words of George Clinton, uh, America eats its young. You know, it's like it literally is, uh, you know, as we're talking about uh, the Vietnam War, we're talking about it is basically about... America kills its children. A year after Joe was released, another film came to theaters. So closely related as to almost feel like a response, like a cinematic answer record. It was called Taking Off, directed by Milos Forman, who would win his first Oscar for Best Director with his next film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It was funny watching them because it really is as if it almost feels like a like a reality show challenge where you give someone just like the roughest outline of what the movie has to be about. Like this like well-to-do couple's kid daughter runs away and she gets involved in drugs in New York City and they react. And then it's just like we go in these different directions. Larry Kurzuski knew Milos Forman very well. He and his screenwriting partner, Scott Alexander, penned two of Forman's films, The People vs. Larry Flint and Man on the Moon. Well, what's funny is, you know, I just, uh, whatever, I, I was, uh, you know, I'm friends with both, I was friends with Abelson and I'm, I'm, you know, very close to Milos. They're two very different people, but once again, I don't want to take anything away from, from John Abelson. He's, he does a great job of dragging. I really think the auteur of Joe is Norman Wexler. And so if you, this Milos Forman, Norman Wexler, there's this, you, there's really a sense of uh, belief in the goodness of human beings. Milos Forman, the believedness of the badness of human beings, Norman Wexler. And Joe, at the end of the day, really believes in the badness of human beings. The, 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 you know, and indeed, evil lurks in the soul of everybody. It's a lot of ways the same story, but it, it coming from a immigrant and a non-American, it doesn't contain that like sense of, of mythic violence. That, that's just part of like the American fabric. Taking Off concerns young Jeannie Tyne, who lives out in the suburbs with her parents, played by Buck Henry and Lynn Carlin. And one day, she just disappears. Why do you think she ran away? I'm not saying she ran away. I was just speaking generally. Did you check her room? They discover that she went into New York City for an audition, and she just doesn't come home. Her mother implores her father to go find her. Larry. Please. You know what the chances are? I go out in the middle of the night and find her, just wandering around the streets. I don't know where to start. It's a, th it's a million to one. 
there's this like inherent sense that like because our parents birthed us and raised us, they are they deserve our respect. And and there's a real rebellion against that in these movies where these teenagers are like, excuse me, I have seen what this is. I'm out. I think that taking off has a little more fun with it because like it's more of a comedy and you you get to see adults who are clearly like struggling with even the concept of what being an adult is, but also obviously jealous of the freedoms they feel like their kids have. Look, Lynn, there's nothing wrong with her. She's not under arrest. She hasn't had an accident. She's off somewhere having a terrific time with her friends. She's having fun while we're breaking our necks, running around and driving from place to place like a couple of maniacs. We should, if we were smart, we'd be having as much fun as she is. That's what we ought to do. Go someplace and have some fun. God damn it. What's interesting about him is he the more he got into this kind of story, he thought like, oh my God, the, the story really here is about the parents. And so he, the, him and Jean-Claude emphasized the parents, but it really is, you know, uh, as opposed to Joe, the kids aren't villains, the kids aren't doing anything wrong, and the parents are just trying to understand. And they seek that understanding in numbers becoming active members of the SPFC, the Society for Parents of Fugitive Children. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's really, it's, it's very well known. It's, it's been in all the newspapers. And, uh, well, we, we had an article in Time magazine. Didn't you read about it? I think I read some. You know, there's been no reason for me to pay any attention to anything like that until now. Oh, sure. It looks at both the, the younger generation and the older generation as kind of patently ridiculous, maybe even hopeless, but not so hopeless as to, you know, end end in tragedy. It just kind of like accepts it as, you know, maybe like a, a part of the human condition. Milos clearly loves people and is fascinated by people. I think him and, and Jean-Claude Carrier, who, uh, who he wrote it with, you know, had heard about a story about a you know, a girl who ran away from her parents and they started like hanging out with the hippies. And, you know, he's a, he was an immigrant. And he came in and he sort of just loved New York City. At some point he was living at the Chelsea Hotel. He loved New York City. He loved artists. He loves kids. You know, he was like, you know, from Czechoslovakia. So he really fit in. Friends, as you know, the purpose and the aim of our society for the parents of fugitive children is not only to try to find those children, but to try to understand them. But in the end, it was the idea that if they could, if they could at least communicate with each other, then it doesn't need to be an all or nothing scenario. And that is why this marijuana, which I am told is particularly pure in form and therefore perhaps particularly effective as to reaction, is what I propose that you indulge in here with me. This is my first indulgence and like i thought actually the scene where they all get high was really sweet and perhaps this will aid us to understand hopefully what it is that our children are involved in and perhaps why because even though it's 100 percent making fun of these like stiffs who like have to learn what bogarting means now the other thing that you must remember is that after you inhale you take the joint and you pass it to the person sitting next to you do not repeat, do not hold on to the joint. This is called bogarting the joint and it is very rude. I thought it was actually really wonderful 
that they were trying to understand. Especially because, like, in theory, a lot of them are in that room because their kids are gone. So they have, like, very serious things going on. But it's like, if I can at least understand where they're coming from, maybe this is a conversation we could have where I could be like, well, I tried the marijuana. The contrast here between Bill Compton and Joe indulging in hippie culture, which is presented as sordid and sinful, and these parents having an innocent toke is striking. The scene is played for laughs, sure, but this is floated as a, a point of intersection because these middle-aged, upper-class types have basically the same experience as their kids. Some giggle, some smile, some get horny. Warning aside, some bogart. Someone complains they can't feel anything, and so on. I mean, I think they are saying that the parents are out of touch. They don't know They don't know how to smoke pot. They can't, you know, when, when, when Buck Henry winds up, you know, having playing strip poker with his wife and a port, you know, it's definitely not, it's definitely not, um, you know, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, you know, it's definitely this awkward thing where they're just not, it, this is not their generation and they're not good at this. So it's definitely played for laughs, but it's about human beings trying to connect on a level. And taking off ends not in violence, but in kindness. Young Jeannie returns home to her parents, who encourage her to invite her long-haired, bearded musician boyfriend over for dinner. It's awkward, but that's it. And that's surmountable. And so we have two very different ideas of how to tackle the generation gap and two very different outcomes. Which one, in retrospect, predicted where we went and what we became? Here's the thing, I think Joe is more the perfect capture of that moment and that's why it was a phenomenal hit taking off was more of uh of the solution going forward and i i you know i would have to say we sort of went that way counterculture eventually just start paying their taxes and vote for reagan i mean you can even you mean take that cynically if you want to but it was about you know the hippie culture didn't last at a certain point they did everyone wanted to take a shower as Neil Schwarman would probably agree, the, the life isn't one thing or the other. So that, that's what makes these films totally fascinating. Okay, so here I want to go ahead and bring in my co-host, Mike Hull, because I, I think it's important to, to sort of define and situate exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the generation gap and like what was happening in the culture in 1970 when the Hard Hat Riots and Joe and Taking Off are, are being made. In a lot of ways, the question of this generation gap is a question of whether or not we believe the mythology of America. Mm. And when you think about the people who are kind of of Joe's generation, you know, and, and, you know, the kind of slightly older generation, a lot of them were growing up during World War II. Or even fighting during it, yeah. Or fighting during it, right, as as young, as teenagers in right. some cases. Right, and And, you know, then we kind of move into Korea, and Korea is a little bit murkier, but it's still, you know, much easier to kind of look at our actions in the world at that point. And and find good in them. Sure. Ho Chi Minh, right? Who is, I know we're getting way out of fucking downtown Manhattan right now, but just, <laughs> I think it's irrelevant. Sure. I think it's a relevant example. Ho Chi Minh, you know, was the, the leader of, of the Vietnamese rebellion, right? And he looked at all of the language that we were using during World War II and, and shortly after about self-determination, mm -hmm. you know, and about kind of the end of colonialism and about, you know, rights and freedom and, and all of our vaunty, vaunted language, which is the American myth. Right. 
right? Like that's, that is our myth is freedom for all, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of voting, you know, all those kinds of things. And Ho Chi Minh was looking at all of that and he said, obviously they're going to help us. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously they're going to be on our side against the French. And he begged the American government, you know, at first like respectfully and then kind of with an increasing sense of urgency and frustration for help. And we not only did we not even provide him with diplomatic help, you know, to say to the French, like, look, guys, like, obviously the 1700s are over. <laughs> Pack your shit, <laughs> yeah. you know, right? Yeah. We didn't even offer them, you know, diplomatic help. In fact, what we did was started sending soldiers to fight with the French. And then when the French did eventually abandon, we just took over the fight. Yeah. You know, and so when you're looking at people who are growing up in that era, instead of in the era of World War II. Yeah. We still have all of, we're still using all of the same language, but we're not actually participating in any of the practices anymore. And I think that, you know, when you combine that with the civil rights protest and with the way that black people were being treated in the South, which of course, or in the South, all over the United yeah. States. And of course, that conversation goes back to after World War One, right. when we had black soldiers who were going to France and were fighting for freedom and were fighting for self-determination. And then they came home and it was very clear that they did not have the thing that they were fighting for for other people. They did not have in their own country. And they complained about it. Right. And I think that that is really the meat of the of the generation gap is this idea of, you know, are we as Americans living up to our mythology or not? Well, and the thing to keep that we also have to bear in mind, too, is that, you know, a year before the hard hat riot in New York City, you have the Stonewall riot. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I'm what I'm fascinated by is this idea that, you know, the the perpetrators of the hard hat riot had spent several years now watching all of these factions protest and and seeing the effectiveness of protest and in some ways attempting to do a protest of their own, but without taking away any of what we had learned in the protest era about civility and nonviolence. And instead, it's just this bloodbath. I don't think that we had really come around or incorporated the ideas of kind of toxic masculinity you know, or the, it, it, we were still as a nation yeah, talking about that attitude as a positive thing. And, you know, we referred to it as grit, Yep, you know, and, and, and those kinds of things instead of thinking about it as something that is extremely destructive and caused most of those men to die of heart attacks in their 50s. <laughs> right. I think to go back to the beginning of our little conversation about what is the kind of nut of the generation gap, it's really defined by this question of what do you think of as the American myth? Do you think of Thomas Jefferson, the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence, or do you think of yeah. Thomas Jefferson, the guy who raped Sally Hemings? If you think that that, is, that it was only ever intended for white men, then expanding the myth and, and our words and our language to incorporate other groups of people seems like we are going against America. Seems like you are going against, you know, everything that we fought for and everything that we've worked for, right? And, and if you believe that the American myth is that all men are created equal and men include women and non-binary people and literally anybody who's hungry on a random Tuesday morning, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you believe that that myth includes all of us, then, you know, that's the side of the gap that you fall on. And I think that that unfortunately the only people who have the language to make that distinction 
are the people who are trying to expand the myth, not the people who are trying to constrict it. They often only talked about in the sense of the generation gap, but it's for me, it's like maybe the best movie on class ever made. It really is about rich and poor. It really is. Larry Karaszewski is right. Ultimately, Joe was, true to its original title, about the gap. But at least in terms of cultural permanence, it was less about the generation gap than the class gap, as Derek Nystrom wrote in his book on class in the films of the 1970s. What's interesting about the the first, say, 30 minutes of Joe is that it very much is a story about generational conflict within the middle class, um, or, or as I like to call it, the, the, the professional managerial class, more precise term uh, coined by Barbara and John Ehrenreich. And it's very much a film about how the younger uh, 1960s generation of the professional managerial class was disaffiliating from a lot of uh, middle class institutions and middle class practices. And in this way, it was a fairly standard narrative template for a lot of films that were being made in the late 60s and early 70s as part of the new Hollywood. Christy Puchko grew up in the kind of Pennsylvania community that people, especially political analysts, are typically talking about when they talk about the white working class. I'm fairly certain I could find you a Joe right now. I, if you gave me 10 minutes in my hometown, I'm fairly certain I could find a Joe. I sweat my balls off 40 hours a week in front of a fucking furnace. They get as much money as I do for nothing. They got them living in hotels at $50 a day, $1,000 a month. But this idea that like the white blue collar class thinks that rich white people are on their side and everybody else is against them is very real. And uh, I think Joe articulates that in a way that while I found harrowing, I'm very convinced that there are still people that would listen to it and be like, I mean, he's not wrong. All you got to do is act black and the money rolls in. Set fire to the cities, burn a few buildings, you get paid for it. Throw a few bombs, you get money and jobs. You know, you want to call him a caricature at times of, you know, the white bigot blue collar slob, except that I think at this point we've all either seen enough or even met or know people that are that are just like that like he, he doesn't come off as caricature anymore some people at the time said that but i after something like the hard hat riots and, and then even now today like you know at at, at heart even you, the way that you see the way that the conservative movement has you know embraced that it's always there it's always been there that's always kind of been the, he's the id of, of that whole ideology before long, Joe-like figures started appearing elsewhere in popular culture, most notably in the character of Archie Bunker on TV's All in the Family, which debuted the following January. That show's creator, Norman Lear, was, like Joe's filmmakers, ideologically liberal, creating the character as a commentary and criticism of bigots and ideologues. But, well... There's a certain kind of ideological openness to the way that these texts can be read, something like Joe, certainly something like Archie Bunker, right? I mean, the, the fascinating debates around how are we supposed to understand the popularity of All in the Family is that, you know, do you think you're laughing at Archie Bunker or are you laughing with him? Uh, and the program very much makes it possible to do both. The thing is that then this, this idea of this like blue collared guy that's going to mouth off all the time 
became an icon became like you know i was like they were saying very directly it led to like all in the family which led to the simpsons which led to a family guy and american dad like we have turned that idea into a comedy thing and essentially tried to like neutralize it but it's still incredibly toxic and i don't think that we i think because people are like no it's just funny you get that whole like it's just jokes it's just jokes and like it came from a place of incredible violence and it's like, just because you've taken away the physical violence doesn't make those things, you know, okay. It just makes them more like socially acceptable. And it is really easy to say that that is a, a trend with conservatives. You know, they see Archie Bunker and they decide that Archie Bunker is the voice of reason in a show, which is supposed to actually, you know, be sending him up. Or they see Joe not as a psychopath or, or social pariah, even though the movie makes it very, as him makes him as repulsive as possible. And you see that, you know, still to today with stuff like uh, Joker or all the endless stuff about Taxi Driver. But I do think there is a tendency amongst progressives and liberals to assume that they are the only ones who are smart enough to understand what these narratives are doing. Where people are saying, oh, yeah, this this character, Joe, this character, Archie Bunker, they're supposed to be kind of idiots. And yet I really like how they're sticking it to these various yeah. sort of elite sources of, of authority in our culture. But the influence of the hard hat, the idea of the white working class that's had it up to here with young rabble rousers and their ilk, wasn't just seen on television and movie screens. Twelve days after the hard hat riot, in cities across the country, working class citizens gathered for what amounted to the nonviolent version of the riot, with the largest turnout in Manhattan. Something like 150,000 construction workers, longshoremen, teamsters, and the like descended on City Hall, singing their anthems, chanting to love it or leave it, waving American flags. Time Magazine declared the day Workers' Woodstock and noted, quote, almost overnight, hard hats became synonymous with white working class conservatives, end quote. And this was a change. Hard hats like Joe and like the men who descended on Wall Street on May 8th had traditionally voted Democrat, as most unions did. But Nixon had been quietly courting them, from less a fiscal than social angle since his 1968 presidential campaign. When he accepted that nomination in the midst of a season of protest, much of it violent, he promised to represent another voice. It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. Not long after, Nixon would put a name to that voice. And so tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. The name stuck, and it was invoked to describe those who participated in these rallies, violent and non. Nixon had barely won in 1968, and not because the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, was particularly hard to beat. It was because of George Wallace, the segregationist former governor of Alabama, who had run as an independent. Jefferson Cowie writes in his book, Stayin' Alive, that Wallace, quote, drew together the segregationist South with anti-liberal Northerners, concerned about blacks moving into their neighborhoods, fearful of the riots, and feeling simply forgotten, end quote. Writing in the New York Post, columnist Pete Hamill surmised of Wallace voters, quote, they want change. The America they thought was theirs has become something else in their own lifetimes. They want to go back. A lot of the people attracted to George Wallace are just people who think America has passed them by. 
leaving them confused and screwed up and unhappy, end quote. The day after the workers' Woodstock, presidential advisor Pat Buchanan wrote a memo to President Nixon. Last week, a group of construction workers came up Wall Street and beat the living hell out of some demonstrators who were desecrating the American flag. Whether one condones this kind of violence or not, probably half the living rooms in America were in standing applause at the spectacle. No union man would have done that 10 years ago. These, quite candidly, are our people now. And so on May 26, 1970, less than a month after the hard hat riot, Nixon invited his people to the White House. Two dozen labor leaders met with the president, appeared in photos with him, and gave him mementos, including a white helmet with the words, Commander-in-Chief, written in blue. Nixon then invited AFL-CIO head George Meany and 60 other labor leaders to dinner at the White House on Labor Day, a potent and symbolic gesture. And in 1972, Nixon campaigned directly at what he had called the new majority. For the first time, pro-labor language was added to the party platform. Nixon appealed to the cultural values, though pointedly not the economic needs, of white, male, working-class voters. He appealed to their sense of patriotism, their social issues, their values. He invited Democrats driven out of their party to come home. It wouldn't be an easy task. The Democratic nominee, George McGovern, was, as Cowie writes, the most pro-labor candidate ever produced by the American two-party system. Campaign memos laid out the strategy. Quote, we should increasingly portray McGovern as the pet radical of Eastern liberalism, the darling of the New York Times, the hero of the Berkeley Hill jet set, Mr. Radical Chic. The liberal elitists are his. We have to get back the working people. And the better we portray McGovern as an elitist radical, the smaller his political base. By November, he should be postured as the establishment's fair-haired boy and RN postured as the candidate of the common man, the working man. End quote. As part of that strategy, a group called Democrats for Nixon ran a TV spot. High above a city, a hard hat wearing construction worker sits on the scaffolding of his job site, opening his brown bag lunch as this voiceover is heard. Senator George McGovern recently submitted a welfare bill to the Congress. According to an analysis by the Senate Finance Committee, the McGovern bill would make 47% of the people in the United States eligible for welfare. 47%. Almost every other person in the country would be on welfare. And who's going to pay for this? Well, if you're not the one out of two people on welfare, you do. And at that, the hard hat stares straight into the camera. The language may have been softer, but the rhetoric sounded an awful lot like another hard hat. I sweat my balls off 40 hours a week in front of a fucking furnace. They get as much money as I do for nothing. Nixon's outreach to labor unions was led by Peter J. Brennan, president of the Building and Construction Trades Council of Greater New York. And after the incumbent president's landslide victory in 1972, he thanked Brennan for his service by appointing him secretary of labor. The politicians that will play to the validation of blue collar workers, which I think that validation like blue collar workers deserve validation. But the ones that play to that will succeed with them often because they're selling them a Joe fantasy, right? Like, you know, oh, we're going to bring steel back. We're going to bring coal back. It's it's really vexing because it's like, you know, I've I've watched that rhetoric 
completely buy up most like a good chunk of my family who feels like, you know, people that don't work like they work are lazy and yet don't make the connection to the Comptons of the world who like, you know, I get like maybe Bill Compton works hard, but he's not putting the work in like Joe is putting the work in. It's a very different everything. And I think it's interesting how the movie. Yeah, the movie shows that what they have in common is actually pretty grotesque. But a bond had been cast and it's held to this day as have other byproducts of that particular moment in history. When these violent incidents, the 1968 attacks in Chicago, the Kent State shootings, the Hard Hat riots, initially occurred, members of the media were surprised by polling that indicated that the majority of their readers and their viewers cited against the victims, cited with Chicago police, the National Guard, the Hard Hats and their Wall Street accomplices. And as Derek Nystrom explains in his book, Hard Hats, Rednecks, and Macho Men, quote, terrified at the possibility that they had lost touch with the majority, the national media began to explore this unknown population of apparently conservative, traditionalist, middle Americans to whom Richard Nixon appealed to a little more than a year later as the great silent majority, end quote. These pieces had titles like The Revolt of the White Lower Middle Class and The Forgotten American. Nystrom further points out, quote, the relative novelty offered by the exotic appearance and speech of the blue-collar interviewees that gave the articles on Middle America an attention-grabbing hook. Sound familiar? I, I will first say that I'm always wary. This is a, a standard academic move to say that. And my research tells us something about the Trump phenomenon. But the discovery of this uh, forgotten silent ma uh, majority in the late 60s, early 70s sounds so familiar to uh, what I believe Hamilton Nolan referred to as the, the Cletus Safaris um, that was in, undertaken by New York Times writers going into diners in Ohio and, and small towns in Pennsylvania trying to find the Trump voter. In some ways, this speaks to the fact that on the one hand, there's a certain kind of romanticization of the working class that is embraced by uh, certain elite media sources um, when it because it enables them to say things that they wouldn't be able to say in their own voice. And, and, I, and I think that the Trump phenomenon is just a, a, a sort of almost sort of farcical exaggeration of this. I mean, you have this guy born into tremendous wealth um, who spent his entire life sort of squandering that wealth and then having it handed it back to him. Um, and yet somehow he's the voice of the common man. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So there's this idea that somehow there's a kind of authenticity um, to working class reaction and resentment that gives it a certain kind of authority that it wouldn't have if it was, say, the, uh, the, the sort of reaction and resentment and, and frankly straight up racism of someone coming from a higher class position. It, it enables a certain kind of white privilege to be smuggled in through the door through the idea of, of a kind of class authenticity. In his diaries of the time, Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, wrote that the Republican Party needed to build our own new coalition based on silent majority, blue collar, Catholic, Poles, Italians, Irish, no promise with Jews and Negroes, appeal not hard right wing, Bircher, or anti-communist. That last part did not survive into the 21st century. You can't control that rage anymore. You can't You can't give it just like little outlets and venues. It, it, it's now going to elect a guy who speaks to that, the basest part of it. It's now going to elect basically the <laughs> pretty much the mix of Compton and Joe in Trump, right? Like 
he's a guy from Compton's world, but he's got Joe's personality. And, you know, by the time that he's out of office, the, the hard hat riots are now on a scale that we've never seen before. Joe is part of a whole kind of basket of, of images that are that are uh, uh, thrown together as this sort of backlash, hard hat, white working class character. This is Jefferson Cowie. He's a labor and political historian at Vanderbilt University. You know, you see it the year before, an easy rider with the kind of rednecks that blow away the uh, protagonists uh, at the end of the movie. Then, you know, you see it in the hard hat demonstrations in Manhattan in May of 1970s. You know, the next year it, re- it appears as Archie Bunker in January of 1971. This is the character of the period. And it, it's really, he's, and it, he is, he contains sort of this boiling rage at all the social and cultural transformations. It's my sense that of the, of these events that like, if you go back to Goldwater in 64, who's running basically as a libertarian, get the state off your back, da-da-da, that stuff doesn't really resonate. You know, the, the, the sort of f- total free market idea doesn't have popular traction. But if you marry it to the anti-statist, the racialized anti-statism of a Wallace, now you have the very coalition you see working out in Joe. Right. The advertising executive who wants his taxes lowered and he wants moral order, plus the working class white, white working class grit of a guy like Joe. And now we see the Reagan coalition uh, emerging really right in that film. Like just to get really like down to kind of coarse level stuff. This is a settler colonial nation that displaced Native Americans and enslaved black people. Both of those things supported white people, right? And so anything that challenges that is a problem. And so the word backlash emerges in the 62, 63, 64. I think it's 63. It first really hits the press. But then that becomes sort of the word of the mid-60s. It's everywhere in the mid-60s. If you are willing to use that tool in American history, or in American politics, that tool of the volatility and anger of white working class people, especially after they've been kind of demoted culturally, have been taken off their pedestal culturally and are feeling angry, it is a very accessible thing. And that's what Trump kind of stumbled upon, I think, in a lot of ways. Okay, at risk of asking you to compress 50 years of history into like three minutes, how do we get from the hard hat riots to the Capitol riots? And is it too simplistic to draw that kind of a straight line? There is an element of white blue collar identity that seeks economic security and a sense of solidarity and community life and family stability and uh, a sort of social patriotism and uh, an interracial vision. I mean, it's, it's absolutely there. We see it throughout history. It's not just white working class people are, you know, dim-witted Joes and Archie Bunkers and they're in play. But the Democrats have failed to find a message that really can resonate with that group. What has been looming with Donald Trump 
or the, the expression that is Donald Trump. It's there with pitchfork Ben Tillman. It's there in McCarthyism. It's there in in Wallace. It's there in Reagan. It's 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 there in the Tea Party. It's there in the, oh yeah, it's there in the Tea Party big time. The the weird thing is that Trump won, right? And that was a bit of a political fluke, I think. So it's it's not that this is something brand new. It's just it's just kind of new that a guy like that won the presidency. I think I hold forth as uh, as both a model and a problem uh, the New Deal order, more or less from the 1930s to the late 60s and early 70s when Wallace helped tear it down, and in that period. White working class people were politically incorporated into labor, which was incorporated into the Democratic Party, and you basically had a coalition that worked, that redistributed wealth, that could get things done, that created not only all the New Deal programs, but the Great Society programs, and the Civil Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act, and and um, all that stuff. And but that's a fairly bracketed period of about thirty years. And that's, I make this argument in this book called The Great Exception, that that one period stands out in a different way. Mm. And it has problems, uh, major problems, I mean, around race and somewhat in gender and things like that. But it worked when it worked. Um, but I'm kind of impressed. I mean, I'm surprisingly impressed by Joe Biden. Um, I mean, he really, and I think this is one of the Democrats' dilemmas. They're representing a coalition of minorities, of women, a shrinking number of white working class members. But, you know, Joe from Scranton is their guy. And he's, I mean, he's talking about really rejiggering some of the fundamentals of the economy in a way that haven't been done in multiple generations. The, I think that paradigm that arcs from sort of the Wallace-Nixon era through Reagan, through Clinton, a little bit through Obama, has come to an end with Trump. Like, I think that neoliberal order is is closing. And we just don't know what's coming next. I think, you know, I, I see history as sort of in these large, not electoral cycles, but large blocks of kind of logic. And we have the New Deal period, then we have this sort of new neoliberal period. And I don't know what's coming next. I really don't. Um, I have my hopes. What we don't think about enough is really this white working class character who plays kind of a dual role of actually needing representation and economic security, but also is a bit of an extortionist in American politics, right? If I don't get my way, I'm going to blow this shit up. And finding out ways to placate that, to to make that secure, to bring that person into a coalition of shared economic interests with other people is, is, what, is what needs to happen. Now, what are the real issues that exist today in these United States? It is the trend of pseudo-intellectual government where a select elite group have written guidelines and bureaus and court decisions, have spoken from some pulpits, some college campuses, some newspaper offices, looking down their noses at the average man on the street, the glass workers, the steel workers, the auto workers, and the textile workers, 
the farm workers, the policeman, the beautician, and the barber, and the little businessman, saying to him that you do not know how to get up in the morning or go to bed at night unless we write you a guideline. That summary of the woes of America, of the working man versus the elites, is more than 50 years old. George Wallace spoke those words during his 1968 presidential campaign. But they could just as easily have come out of Donald Trump's mouth in 2016 when he pledged to bring manufacturing jobs, coal mining, and other vanished industries of the white working class back to the nation. He wore a hard hat at some rallies where he waxed rhapsodic about forgotten Americans and the silent majority and spoke Joe-like pronouncements about the racial minorities, liberal elites, and other boogeymen that they could blame for their woes. And when he pulled an unexpected upset in that election, most pundits attributed that victory to the support of the white working class. His actual accomplishments didn't deliver much to that electorate, at least economically. He gave huge tax cuts to the rich and loaded the courts with a generation's worth of ultra-conservative judges. But he used his Twitter and his press conferences and his rallies, his versions of the bar stool at the All-American Grill, to mouthpiece the grievances his base wanted to hear. In his book on the hard hat riot, author David Paul Kuhn writes, For many alienated whites, Trump was a middle finger to the elites. As people do, they compared their present to their personal past, as well as against America's promise. End quote. Kuhn's book was published in early 2020, so he had no way of knowing that his deeply researched, blow-by-blow accounts of the events of May 8th, 1970, would echo so chillingly the scenes we'd see on January 6th, 2021. The chanting, the marching, the violence, and most of all, the waves of furious men, blue-collar and white-collar alike, attempting to overtake a seat of American governance in the name of what they called patriotism. The generation gap may no longer be with us, at least as a focal point of discussion and despair, the way it was in Joe and taking off. But the class gap, the political gap, the ideological gaps of 1970 and 1971 are still very much alive, pulsing and consuming our discourse every hour of every day. Which takes us back to those endings. For a good long while, it felt like we as a culture, as a country, could manage the taking off ending. Things were going to be uncomfortable here in our splintered country, but if we all made an effort to understand each other, we could at least get along with our lives, if not always with each other. But now we're in the midst of a polarization where more violence and more death feels not only possible, but inevitable. And in the name of apparently irreparable political divides, what remained of our shared norms, our, our shared values, our common causes have gone out the window. Maybe we're not heading towards the Joe ending, but it certainly feels like it. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book, Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, out today, October 26th, from Abrams Books and available wherever books and ebooks are sold. 
Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hull. Special thanks to today's guests. Jefferson Cowie is the James G. Stallman Professor of American History at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of several books, including Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor, Staying Alive, The 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class, and The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics. His writings have also appeared in the New York Times, The New Republic, and Foreign Affairs, among other publications. Larry Karaszewski is a screenwriter and filmmaker whose credits, alongside partner Scott Alexander, include Ed Wood, The People vs. Larry Flint, Man in the Moon, Dolomite is My Name, and American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. He is also a contributor to Trailers from Hell and a vice president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. You can follow him on Twitter at Karaszewski. Derek Nystrom is Associate Professor of English at McGill University, where he teaches film and cultural studies. His book, Hard Hats, Rednecks, and Macho Men, Class in 1970s American Cinema, is essential and available wherever books are sold. Christy Puchko is a professional film critic and editor based in New York City. You can read her work at IGN, Crooked Marquee, The Playlist, RogerEber.com, and more. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Christy Puchko. And Zach Vasquez is a film writer with bylines at The Guardian, Crooked Marquee, Crime Reads, and others. You can follow him on Twitter at Zach underscore Vasquez. Additional special thanks to Consigliere Rebecca Dryden. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. You can listen to episodes, read show notes, and order your copy of Jason's book. And if you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at funcitycinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at BrainwashedLib, and Jason is at Jason-Bailey. And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. You'll also get additional writings and bonus episodes, including the full Larry Karaszewski interview from today's show. Or you can rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really helps. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Hey, you know what else you gotta do? What? You gotta come out to the house. You gotta meet the little woman. You gotta have a little dinner with us. See how the other half lives, okay?